0: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a Q&A episode. I think I have two really, really great guests I'm excited about in the next two weeks. So you guys don't have to just listen to me monologue here um, next week and the following week. So two really good episodes coming up. This week's gonna be a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. You guys know the drill. Something like 30 minutes, I'll get through as many as I can, and I will stop rambling. Let's get into it. First question is from JLM150, and he or she asks... Why do you prefer the stim-free pre-workout from Legion so much? I'm guessing you mean the stim-free one. Why do I prefer the stim-free one to the one that has caffeine? Before we start, you don't need pre-workout. Nobody needs pre-workout. It's not what's, you know, it, not taking pre-workout is not make or break, making or breaking your gains. Like it's not making or breaking your quality of your workout or your adaptations. You do not need pre-workout. Just because you don't need it doesn't mean it might not have some benefit. Obviously, you know, there's things that you don't need that can still enhance things a little bit. Um... And you might like it, and so liking it is an independent variable that that might matter. But what is stim-free pre-workout? I mean, it sounds like an oxymoron for anybody who's ever taken pre-workout. You're like, well, isn't the whole point to have a whole bunch of caffeine? Like, what's the point of a stim-free pre-workout? And I'm with you. I used to think that I needed this, like, hyped-up energy boost from the caffeine, and, and that's what was helping me the most, and there's some... Truth to that, I mean, caffeine is an ergogenic aid. It does have benefits in the research when it comes to intensity from from strength and performance, also on the endurance, more metabolic side. And so, it makes sense. Okay, I have caffeine. It's an ergogenic uh, aid, and it will help me in my workouts. And it will, and that that is legit. Um, and there's nothing wrong with having caffeine before your workout. But I'm realizing now, for me that it is the nootropic or focus enhancing side of caffeine, those benefits that are actually, for me, way more beneficial and it's not this like, I don't need this like jittery energy boost. What I need is to get in the zone. What I need is something that helps me get in the zone and yeah, a little bit of energy is cool too but it was more of that nootropic benefit of caffeine, that focus enhancing side of caffeine that was always something that was really helpful. And knowing that there might be better ways or equally good ways, you know, where you don't have to have a ton of caffeine, where you can get that nootropic benefit, and you know there are a lot of these quote unquote nootropic uh, um, nootropic supplements and ingredients out there, and but the one that is used in the Legion Stim Free Pre Workout is Alpha GPC, and it's something that I've had a really good experience with in terms of the nootropic benefit, in terms of feeling focused and in the zone and in the right headspace, and those are the things that you're really looking for in a pre workout, like. I think we, th- we assume that it's the caffeine that's doing that and it might be doing that, but it's doing it in the way that's affecting your, your mental state, not necessarily this like jittery energy boost. And I'm not shitting on caffeine before a workout. Caffeine's fine. You can have a cup of coffee and go have a great workout. It's awesome. You can have, you know, whatever, pre-workout that has stimulants in it and have a great workout. There's nothing wrong with it. What I am saying though is there's a lot of people out there drinking way too much caffeine. Not only are you having to- too much total caffeine, But you're probably also, if you work out in the afternoon and you take a pre-workout, you're voluntarily just fucking up your sleep where, you know, if there was an alternative where you could have the nootropic or in the zone or the actual end benefit that you're looking for, which is like, I want to have a better workout. If you could get that without the caffeine. Wouldn't you do it? And and for me, honestly, trying the stim free pro workout was it's a revelation. The Alpha GPC is is dosed appropriately, like all Legion supplements are, and I get a 100% in the zone feeling. Obviously, there's other ergogenic benefits. There's the there's beta alanine, there's uh, uh sodium bicarbonate, there's um, uh, citrulline mallet. and so there's other ingredients in there that don't that don't necessarily have acute benefits or things that. More, more like tangible benefits that you can feel that are in all pre-workouts. But the substitution of caffeine for a nootropic aid like Alpha GPC has been a revelation for me. So if you're somebody who already knows you drink too much caffeine, this is an amazing swap. If you're somebody who lifts in the afternoon and you probably shouldn't be having caffeine within 10 hours of bed anyway, this is an amazing swap. I recommend everybody who's like a little bit concerned with their caffeine intake which it should be most of us that we are at least considering it. Try the stim-free pre-workout. It doesn't need necessarily to be the one from Legion. I do find that the Alpha GPC is unique in the Legion one. It's a wonderful supplement, but I'm sure there are other ones. Give stim-free pre-workouts a try. Uh, I'm a big, big fan. Also, P.S. Like the nootropic side of things from a focus, from a focus enhancing side of things, like. It helps me. I don't know how to, this is going to sound a little like woo woo, but like it helps me be more in touch with the mind muscle connection and what I'm doing. Like it helps me be a little bit more cerebral. I'm not like going through the motions and just like grunting and screaming through my workouts and rushing through it. Having that nootropic side of things, that that focus enhancing side of things, has really made me just I don't know, be a little bit more in the moment, a little more present, a little bit more thinking about the movement, thinking about where I'm feeling it, thinking about the intent. Uh, and it's really just overall increased the, the, the quality of my workouts. Now, again, you absolutely don't need pre-workout. You don't, but if you take a stimulant, a pre-workout with stimulant, it probably has like 300 milligrams of caffeine because that's the clinically effective dose. And so, you know, if, if 300 milligrams caffeine is in your pre-workout and something like two to three milligrams per kilogram of caffeine per day is the amount you should have, that's already more than that in one serving. And my bet is that you actually also have caffeine in other times of the day. And so give it some thought. Moving on. I always have a first question. I always, uh, I always go a little bit longer, but it was a good question. Next question is from Callum JKs. J-K-S-s. What is the benefit of training to failure? Wow. This could be an entire podcast in itself, but let's start with what's most important is, is first you need to get close to failure. Let's say within four reps to stimulate muscle growth. So training to failure. Okay. We'll get to that in a second, but like the idea of training close to failure. You need to get close to failure to stimulate growth. And in a non-scientific way, like you need to send a signal to your body that this is really hard and you need to adapt. So if this thing ever comes back, we'll be able to be strong enough to lift it, let's say. And so you need to get close to failure, close enough, let's say within four reps, to stimulate growth. We really wanna, you know, whatever, the closer we get to failure, the more high threshold muscle fibers that we're recruiting. And you actually send a strong enough signal to your body that it needs to adapt to the stimulus. However, now we have this idea of getting within four reps. Well, what's the difference between four, let's say four reps in reserve, four RIR, three RIR, two RIR, one RIR, and zero RIR. Like now I'm within this range. Is two better than three? Is two better than four? Is zero better than four? And obviously we're talking about failure. So we're talking about in this context, zero RIR. And so it's pretty clear in the research as of right now that the adaptations you get from a set to failure, let's call that zero RIR, and a set at one or two RIR are Probably identical by any measurable standard. We cannot detect more muscle growth from zero RIR than from one RIR, and our zero RIR probably has a downside of being a little bit more fatiguing. To really take a set all the way to, to technical failure to zero RIR just takes a whole lot out of you. You know, maybe a disproportionately—it's disproportionately more fatiguing than a set at two RIR. And the benefit that you might get at two RIR is probably again identical by any measurable standard to zero RIR. Now. Why would you go to failure at all then? I'd say a couple of reasons. Um, The most important reason is to learn what failure feels like and where it is. Like, if you've never trained to failure, my gut is you're pretty shit at figuring out what two RIR is. And so it's easy to be like, yeah, you know, get within four reps from failure. And someone's like, okay, cool, yeah, totally. And I deal with this every day because I take on clients and I teach them RIR. A lot of clients who have never used RIR and I give them... The the uh, uh the instructions in their first week of their program to try and leave one to three reps in the tank. A lot of times, people have no fucking clue what that means, and that's okay. It's okay if never if you've never figured that out. You want to know the best way to figure out what two RIR feels like? Go to zero RIR not all the time, but periodically. And so the best thing about failure training is figuring out where it is so that you can better assess what does this four rep in reserve margin really feel like? What does two reps in reserve really feel like? How hard is it? I'll level with you. A three rep in reserve set is a hard set. Now it's not death defying. You don't have to grind out reps, but it's a hard set. I'll have clients be like, yeah, my workout was super easy in the first week. And now There are different contexts. Maybe it's lower volume and a little bit further from failure and maybe it's not as hard. But man, a three rep and reserve set should be a hard set. Like it should still take focus and effort and that last rep, that third rep and reserve rep should be moving slower and should be starting to accumulate some fatigue there. So the best benefit of going to failure is knowing where it is so that you can better assess RIR and make sure that you're actually in that range, which is so, so, so important. I'm not shitting on failure training. Failure training is going to failure is important. You must periodically go to failure to keep that like barometer of where failure is so that you know, okay, if I need to go one or two reps shy of failure, this is what that feels like. And so I guess, the, uh, if, I guess maybe if you put a gun to my head, I said, that zero RIR and one or two RIR are probably identical in terms of benefit by any measurable standard. But if you put a gun to my head, maybe there's a smidge more benefit in that zero RIR, maybe going to complete failure, zero reps in reserve is going to give you more stimulus than a one or two rep RIR set, uh, one or two RIR set. And so, okay, maybe there's some benefit there. Now you can't keep that up forever. So we're not going to talk about how to kind of break down your mesocycle with reps in reserve, but that zero RIR, let's say in the last week of your mesocycle, probably does have some unique tiny, 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 maybe not measurable, but tiny, tiny, tiny benefit. Again, most people have no clue what zero RIR actually is until they go there. And so to ask somebody, okay, yeah, just go two or reps in reserve or one rep in reserve or a couple reps shy of failure. Most people have no freaking clue where that is. They don't know what it feels like to actually take their muscle close to failure. They don't know what it's like to actually mentally go to that place where you need to go to get your set close to failure. So the biggest benefit of training to failure is to find out where the hell it is for its own sake, but also so that you can work backwards from that and know what two reps in reserve feels like or three reps in reserve, whatever your coach is giving you, RPE, whatever, you can flip those numbers. Like, um, you know, y- the, the argument that there's more benefit at zero IR is one that I would contest a little bit. Um, but it's still probably exists. And yes, anything else on this question? Um, maybe a benefit of training to failure is that it's more objective, right? You don't have to worry about RIR at all. Um, but I think never worrying about RIR, never thinking about it and just going to failure all the time is, has a, a huge downsides that I think outweigh the fact that like, okay, now I don't have to think about anything. I just go to failure every week or every every set. Um, cool. Next question is from Jeremy Z C Z. He asks, what are some lower calorie swaps that you made in your cut that you found helpful? Honestly, I was thinking about this question and it's not like I was like, okay, I went whole milk to skim milk and I went, you know, white bread to whole grain bread, or I went white rice to brown rice. It's not like these like, just like, okay, I'm in diet mode. I'd make these swaps. And sometimes yes, but it's more of a change in mindset. And I've said this on the podcast too, when I talked about my cut, like I just go from you know, I I more highly value the satiety per calorie of a food. And when you start going into a situation where you're lowering calories, what you need to do is you need to maximize satiety per calorie. Now in doing so, you don't have to do it 100% all the time, right? It's not like you, we would call this someone who's like, I only eat clean or whatever the hell that means. It's like not every single thing you eat is going to be about maximizing satiety per calorie. But personally, this is just how I felt. It's like, I'm way, for eight to 12 weeks, let's say that's as long as your deficit, for eight to 12 weeks, I'm way more concerned with not being hungry than I am concerned about temporarily not having the yummiest food all the time, you know? I'm I'm way more thinking to myself, man, I don't want to be hungry because when I'm hungry, I'm cranky, I'm irritable, I can't do my work well, I can't be a good boyfriend, I can't be a good dog dad to Callie, I can't be a good friend, I can't be a good coach, like, I'm way more concerned with not being hungry than I am about temporarily having less pasta or no pasta or no donuts or eating out less or whatever. Like those choices that I'm making, I'm making, uh, my food choices were mostly about, okay, what's gonna keep me the most full right now? What's gonna make me feel the best? Because I'm already putting myself in a deficit where I don't feel good. So what choices can I make to make me feel the best during this process so that I can either feel really good during, some combination of feel really good during and not have to do this as long? right? It's when you, it's the one thing I'd like to get across here is like uh, making lower calorie swaps. Like it, it can be helpful totally. But I think we're so focused around like this food for that food, this food for that food that it's, we miss over, we miss this shift in mindset of like, you know, your the food you're eating is a combination of how does this make me feel in the moment? How yummy is it? And how does it make me feel an hour, two hour, three hours a day after? Like how satiating is it? How psychologically satisfying is it? How yummy is it? Like those those things, and obviously there's you can phrase it a bunch of different ways, but like there's like this matrix of values that you have when you choose what you want to eat in that moment. And when you go into a deficit and you voluntarily lower calories, you best believe you're going to need to increase the value of satiety per calorie. And when you do that in general, yeah, that might lead to some lower calorie swaps, but it leads to a mindset that's going to be a little bit more important, I think. Um, and so for me, I was thinking about some specifics to say, I, for me, I thought of three things. I had a really big shake in the morning with a lot of frozen berries. So like maybe 300 grams, frozen berries, 50 grams of frozen avocado and like a double serving of protein powder and lots of water. And it was super high in fiber, super high in nutrients, high in protein, low in calorie, ton of water, took me a while to drink, kept me full for hours. And so that was the, I would try and keep my, my breakfast, like really low calorie, but really high in fiber, high in nutrients, high in protein, high in water, um, so that I could have a little bit. You know, in the morning I'm not super hungry, but I really want to like get ahead of the game in terms of satiety and nutrients. And so this was a good way to do that. And for me, potatoes was uh, pot- potatoes are the most satiating carb or starch option for me. Now boiled potatoes. Are actually have been ranked as the highest satiety food that there is boiled potatoes so I wasn't boiling potatoes we were making them super delicious roasted in the oven um, I love potatoes but you get so much potato per calorie like I'm now out of a deficit I'm back in maintenance and'm I've switched over I love pasta it's my favorite food so sometimes I'm having pasta now and not potatoes um, I'm having rice now and I'm and I just am thinking to myself like I get no pasta for so many calories and I get so many potatoes for no calories, and th- that was the kind of trade-off, if we go back to that first point, that I was trying to make, I was like, you could have pasta, dude, 500 calories of pasta, to me, is literally, like, five bites, it's nothing, 500 calories of potatoes, first of all, I wouldn't have 500 calories of potatoes, because it'd just be too freaking much, but it, it would be so many calories, like, you could get full-on 250 calories of potatoes, where 500 calories of pasta wouldn't fill me up at all, so that trade-off of, like, We ate a lot of potatoes. I'll get DMs. People are like, oh, you don't get bored eating the same thing? I'm like, first of all, it's delicious. The way potatoes in the oven at 425, little tiny, tiny, tiny bit of olive oil, salt, pepper, garlic, just fucking take it out when it's almost burned. Um, They're delicious. And no, I don't get bored of it. They are delicious. But also, I, I, I didn't care about getting bored. I cared about not being hungry. And yes, this was delicious. So that's a confounding variable of like, I just straight up enjoy it. But... I was way more concerned not being hungry. And I knew that if I made potatoes tonight, I'd get a ton of food, ton of satiety and not a lot of calories. And then the last one is I didn't eat out as much like low calorie swaps. Yeah. The restaurant for the kitchen. Like I promise you the restaurants aren't out to get you. They're not, they don't have an agenda other than making money and making their food taste really good. They don't care about the calories like you in your own home by a hundred percent of the time are going to make a very similar dish with, you know, whatever, anywhere from 50 to, you know, half to two thirds of the calories. And it's meaningful. I'm not saying you don't need to eat, it; you can't eat out ever, but I am saying that like, uh, shit, man, if you're trying to live your, you know, 2,500 calorie lifestyle where you go out three times a week, four times a week, you're trying to do that on 1, 16 1,700 calories, it's not gonna work. The average restaurant entree is like anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 calories. Like people talk a lot about um, like the difficulties of being a small person and trying to lose weight. Like it's harder for smaller people to lose weight for this singular reason of the, today's food environment is not made for you to be able to live in it comfortably on 1,400, 1,500, 1,600, 1,700 calories. Like, it's just not comfortable to be made for you. Uh, Jenna and I were in a very similar-sized deficit. We were going through similar amounts of hunger. But I got, you know, a 1,000 more calories than she did or 800 more calories uh, just because she's smaller. And so, you know, even though we were both, in a relative sense, equally uncomfortable If I wanted to, you know, go out with a friend or something, I could still reasonably fit that in. So cool. next question, where are we at? 17 minutes. Cool. Next question. Uh, Mariam Anna QV asks, lifting four days versus five days is four days better for recovery if you're really pushing yourself in them? I'm guessing this is in the context of hypertrophy and I'm just going to answer this in a bit more of a general sense. Like you're... Amount of gains that you make is mostly going to come down to, let's say intensity is the same. Let's say you work hard, like we talked about, close enough to failure all the time. You're within a couple reps from failure. Okay, so your intensity is in check. the the amount of like, what matters is total volume across the week. And so if you take a three day week split and you do the same exact amount of sets over five days, you're going to see more or less the exact same results. Now, when you take extreme examples where it's like comparing two days a week versus five days, the five days is probably going to be better because the two days are probably going to be such long workouts that workout quality might drop towards the end. But now we're talking about four or five, like, like how many sets are you doing per muscle group? I don't want to hear how many days you're working out because if you work out twice a week for 10 sets, or let's say you work out five days a week, but you're only doing two exercises per workout. Like, okay, this is like, you could do that in two days and get the same results and have five days off. Like like five gives you the opportunity to do more sets. So when people are like, hey, I'm lifting four or five days is four better. It's like, I'm going to guess that you're doing less sets per week at four days than you are at five days, even though it's possible you're doing the same, you're having slightly longer workouts. Um, But like five gives you the opportunity to have more sets. But are you actually doing more sets? Like in this context, would that fifth day actually be an increase in volume? Now, let's say it is an increase in volume. Let's say you were doing 10 sets per muscle group and you could fit that in comfortably into your four days in the gym. And now with the fifth day, you can do 11, 12 sets per muscle group per week and you're doing more volume. Now the question is, is more volume? Now we have another question. Now I'm doing five days, which is more volume. Is that more volume better? Maybe, like this is not, like when you're talking about, volume what we're looking at is like an upside down U curve like really low volume is not going to be as good as more volume till a point to a point where you've done you do so much volume and any more volume is actually going to be worse so it's about finding that sweet spot this is not a more the merrier equation of like well I'm working out more I'm going to get more gains yes if you work out 2 days a week and you do whatever let's say that all the days have the same amount of sets in them so we can just equate that If you work out two days a week and you go to three, you'll get more gains. If you go from three to four, you'll get more gains. If you go to four to five, you might get more gains, but that might now start to tip into too much for some people. Maybe you're in a deficit, maybe your sleep sucks, maybe your stress management sucks. And all of a sudden, adding in that fifth day of that extra volume, that extra stress on your life has now become too much. And so when we're talking about how much should you train, it's about finding that sweet spot. It's not the more the merrier. It's not how much can I do? Right, And for a lot of people that are worried about the how much component, the volume, the how many days per week, the how many sets, a lot of times, like, I'll look at your training program, I'll look at a set and you send me a video or something and you're not getting your sets nearly close enough to failure. Here we are talking about, am I lifting four days or five days or six sets or or what's the angle of my knee in this lunge? It's like, motherfucker, get your set close to failure. Like, it doesn't matter if we add another day, it's just junk volume because you're not getting close enough to failure. Sorry. So what I will say on this should I lift four or five days think uh, question in a more general term is like, what I will say is just from having done this for a long time with a lot of people across a wide array of life, uh, uh, life experience and, and like where they are in their life, four days seems to be the best balance on average, not for everybody. Definitely not for everybody. I have some clients who train three days some train in fives, mostly do four, but it's usually the best or very good balance of enough stimulus for meaningful change and not such a huge time commitment that I'm missing workouts here and there. Like every time I have clients who are like, yeah, I'd love to train five days a week. What they end up doing is they end up training like four and a half times a week or 4.66 times per week where every like two, two to four weeks, they're missing that fifth workout because if you have one life event that comes up and screws up your schedule and you're training five days a week, it's really hard to catch up on that workout. It's really hard. And you might say, okay, well, isn't four and four and a half times better than four? I mean, it's more times per working out. I don't know. I would rather a client do four times a week consistently, than five times a week, two t- two weeks out of the month, and then four times a week, two times of the month, and then miss it another time in the month. Like, there's a psychological benefit of just executing the plan. Like, if I'm writing you a five day plan, like whatever plan your coach is writing, they're writing it with the under the context of you actually freaking doing it. And so, like, I don't I don't want to write you a five day plan and then you'd be like, yeah, it's like this optional fifth day. No, 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 no. I want you doing, the, I'd rather you do four times consistently. There's a psychological benefit of you actually a, a, a achieving or, 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 or accomplishing and executing the plan to its fullest. There's a good feeling that comes from that. And if you're missing a workout every third week, that that's just like gonna feel like you're failing. And then there's just a benefit of continuity and a, a benefit of a lack of randomness. It's like, what, what about those times that you actually do that fifth workout? And what if that fifth workout is like, oh, you're like, oh, it's okay. It's just a ton of arms okay, well, what if two days later you're supposed to bench and you blew out your triceps this week, but next week you didn't do that workout and you didn't blow out your triceps. And so you come into that workout super fresh and the next workout, you're super, your arms are toasted and the next time around, it's super fresh. It's like, now we're just getting something that's really tough to track. And so I'd rather you work out consistently four times than reach for that fifth time and occasionally miss it and just kind of throw a little bit of randomness into the into the mix here. Oh man, we're at 23 minutes. I'm on, that was three, four, four questions Oh so no. Oh no. All right. And this one's going to be a long one too, but oh well, this is a good question. S Bonner Zero asks, can metabolism change or just maintenance calories and how? And and I'm, I'm going to try not to rant too hard. First, we're going to start with your metabolism and maintenance calories are synonyms for now, right? Like how much, like how many calories your body burns is synonymous with how many calories you could eat at maintenance, right? And so we'll just operate with that. Those as synonyms for now. Here we go. Your maintenance calories, your metabolism is mostly a factor of the size of your body and how much that body moves. Like your your TDEE or metabolism or maintenance calories, all the same thing. It's it's your BMR plus how much you move. That's pretty, like that. just at, at face value, that's most of your metabolism. Like sure, we can go into a little bit more. We have exercise activity, we have NEAT, we have thermic effective feeding totally. We can talk about ways to change your BMR. Yes. But most of your like maintenance calories, let's say, or your metabolism is about how large is this body and how much does this body move, right? A smaller body that is sedentary, it's going to need less calories, a larger body that is very active. It's going to need more calories. Like it's your BMR, which is your resting energy expenditure. And then obviously your non-resting energy expenditure, which is your, your, your obviously everything else, neat, eat, TEF, all that stuff. Um, And so yes, BMR, you might say, okay, but what about muscle mass? Yes, BMR has your composition factored into it. So you can affect your BMR without, you can affect BMR without actually having to weigh more because you can have more muscle and weigh the same, let's say, right? People are like, oh, muscle—you could burn more calories at rest, dude. You add like a single-digit amount of calories per extra pound of muscle that you have. It is so minimal. I'm not saying it's negligible. It's negligible across your lifespan because let's say you're you train over a decade and you put on 30 pounds of muscle. Now you might have added 200 ca- extra calories to your maintenance calories. Now you 30 pounds of muscle is a massive amount of extra muscle, and I just said 200 extra calories. So let's keep it in context here. It's still. Uh, uh, doesn't give you this massive boost. I would say though that 200 calories is meaningful. It's just going to take you a super long time, and most people asking this question are not thinking, "Oh yeah, in 10 years from now, will I be able to add 200 calories worth of muscle to my metabolism?" Yes, you can, but that's not what most people are asking. So, if you want to increase your metabolism, like if you want if you want to be able to eat more, right? You either need to gain weight or you need to move more. You need to increase the size of your body so it requires more calories or you need to move the current body that you have so it requires more calories. This idea that you can just, oh, kills me. This idea like that you can just reverse, quote, reverse diet, eat a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and your metabolism is just going to go up and up and up without weight gain. Like... And the worst part is it comes with some truth. Like you do adapt upwards. Our metabolisms are adaptive in both directions. Everybody's very familiar with adaptive thermogenesis or um, metabolic adaptation that happens when you go into a deficit and your, let's say you go into a deficit and your metabolism goes down in response to that deficit, mostly through a reduction in NEAT. So when you go into a deficit, your body detects that it's in deficit. It doesn't want to be in a deficit. So it downregulates your metabolism, mostly through a reduction in your subconscious movement as to bring you back to maintenance. Now, your body does the same thing when you increase calories. When you increase calories, your body will ramp up NEAT to meet that, to try to not gain weight, to try and maintain homeostasis. But you can only adapt up so much. And just for context, like, we are going to be way better at adapting downwards because for the millions of years we've been alive, we have this idea that your metabolism is going to up and down regulate NEAT, like, for the last millions of years, we were way more at risk of dying of starvation than we were at dying of overconsumption. And so we've adapted way better at fighting a deficit than we have at fighting, let's say, a surplus. And so this idea that you're gonna your metabolism is just gonna go up and up and up and adapt up and up and up in response to more food, it, we are way better at metabolic adaptation in the context of a deficit than we are in a surplus. Like Otherwise, the 40% of the, of the world wouldn't be overweight, right? Like there's, you know, uh, uh, we can override that pretty quick, you know? And so... Now we are are operating under the context of your metabolism can upregulate. It can. You can eat more and your metabolism can go up without anything happening. Because your body can do what it does in a deficit where it downregulates meat, it can upregulate meat. That is totally a thing. But you can only adapt as much as your genetics will allow. Like There is a wide spectrum of how much people can adapt. And I've gone over this study in this metabolic ward study where we saw that people adapted to a thousand calorie surplus, a bunch of different ways. Some people gained no weight, some people gained more weight than you'd expect. So your metabolism can only upregulate as much as your genetics will allow. And so if you are like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I wanna I'm boost my metabolism, I'm gonna reverse diet. It's like, you can do that, and that will work until it won't. You'll increase calories, increase calories, increase calories, and, increase calories and nothing, nothing might happen until your metabolism is like, okay, I cannot keep up with the amount of calories you're giving me. I cannot upregulate anymore. And so, you know, these people who reverse dieted their way to super high calories on Instagram, they talk about it. they maybe they're very tiny. They eat a ton of food and then, you know, maybe you are of their size or maybe you're larger, but you can't eat that much. They have more adaptable metabolisms than you. They have quote, in this context, they have better genetics than you. Like their body responds differently to more food than yours will. You cannot just add 50 calories a week. And just be like, yeah, you know, my body's just gonna figure it out by, you know, it's gonna boost my metabolism. Like that will work until it doesn't because you will eventually reach a ceiling in which your body can no longer adapt to this more food. Your body's like, okay, I upregulated meat as much as I can. You're still the same size. You still move this much. That's 90, 90% of your metabolism. Now we need to put on fat because I need this body to gain weight, right? It's like... It just kills me, man. Like these people who are on social media. Are like you just boost your metabolism to do this reverse diet. Now I'm not even sure if this is where this question was coming from, but I, I, this is where I was going to take it. Cause I knew I was going to get, you know, worked up about it. But like, it kills me. These people who reverse their way up to super high calories, you're an 120 pound girl eating 2, 2,500 calories who's telling you, you can do the same thing. Like you probably can't because her metabolism is super adaptable upward. And when she eats more, her body burns it off because it upregulates meat it will upregulate her subconscious movement more than yours. And so everybody, everyone listening to this has an et- metabolism that can upregulate in the context of eating more. Your body will respond to more food with increasing meat, but only so much. And it's differing in terms of genetics. Like this idea that you're just going to increase calories slowly and nothing's going to happen will work until your genetics can't upregulate it anymore. It's not magic. Like if this is how this worked and how would people gain weight? How are people getting fat? Like, doesn't make any sense. Um, cool. So if you want to improve your metabolism, I just don't think this the pursuit of improving your metabolism for most people is a notable pursuit. Now, if you, I will add a little asterisk. If you have been chronically under eating slash over training and you have been in this cycle of malnutrition, let's say of, of under fueling, you probably have a wide range to increase calories and see a real nice uh, increase in meat and can really see your calories go up without much happening. Like I have definitely taken many clients who have come to me eating very low calories and we've gotten them to much higher calories and nothing has happened. But they started in a very uh, many steps back than most people. They started in a state of, you know, under fueling and overtraining. And so they had more room to increase their calories. Like if you're not in that situation, don't expect to add 800 calories, 50 calories a week and just your metabolism to upregulate. If you're somebody who's been like on the tail end of a diet, let's say, if you're somebody on the tail end of a diet, that's why reverse dieting works, that your metabolism does upregulate. But it upregulates more in that context because it just downregulated because you were just at the end of a diet. Cool. Let me see if there's anything else I want to say on that. I'm going to turn the page. We're at 31 minutes. I'm going to get two or three more here. Let me see. Okay. Um, all right. Mrs. Adams UT. Thanks for the pronunciation assistance there. Um, how do different grips for presses, rows, et cetera, change how a muscle is affected? Now, what I will say is the, the grips are, they're not not important. They totally are. But what they do is they set the tone for your arm path. And so uh, like a big part of what grip you're using is how that affects the rest of the downstream, what happens down from your your grip into your arm. What is the path of the arm in your body? And if we're looking at, let's say rows, like what muscles you're biasing is gonna depend on what your arm path looks like. And so if you're rowing and you have your arms back on like a 45 degree angle, that's gonna bias more rear delt. Now, if you think about what that arm path would look like, and I'm doing it right now, you guys can't see, is out on a 45 degree angle. And if you try and keep your hand in that same plane, right, not fully pronated palms down, not fully neutral, not, definitely not supinated, that's going to be the easiest way for you to get that arm path. Now, if you're trying to do a rear delt row with your arms at a 45 degree angle and you have a fully pronated grip, it's going to be difficult, right, because you're going to have to rotate your arm into a less optimal position. And similarly, if you're trying to do an upper back row, if you're trying to do an upper back row, you need your arms up in that like 60 to 90 degrees, up, up higher. And so... What's going to make that the easiest is a fully pronated grip. If you try and do elbows up really high with a neutral grip, you're going to be obviously disadvantaging the muscles. It's also going to be super awkward. And so your grip for your presses and rows and pull downs, your grip in general, it's going to be like a precursor to your arm path. Sets the tone, let's say, for the arm path. If we're looking at presses and we're looking, let's say, at like a flat, whatever, flat dumbbell press, and you have your arms tucked a little bit closer into the body, maybe again, maybe at like a 45 degree or even closer, it's going to be more clavicular pack because that better aligns with the fibers. Now, if you try and make that arm path again, but you try and do that with a fully pronated grip, right? Like it's going to be more uncomfortable one. It's also going to uh, uh, have worse output for that muscle group. And so matching your grip and your arm path is almost always a good idea. When you're trying to work the lats, it's going to be really tough to have a fully pronated grip. You're going to want a neutral grip. And so, yes, again, you could probably get... You know, it's, it's probably not so black and white where it's impossible to work upper back without a pronated grip. And okay, it's probably not that black and white, but it's going to help you optimize the muscle output, the output of the muscle that you're trying to grow. It's also going to make things more comfortable, which probably lets you use more load and get more tension on the target musculature. Cool. Next question is from J. Pinnick. J. Pinnick. J. Picnic. Nope. I'm kidding uh, thoughts on the fair life ice cream. And you started with thoughts on, but I really liked the fair life ice cream. So I picked this question because I thought it was fantastic. I got a client it to me, Fairlife yeah, fair life ice cream. For those you guys don't know, fair life, whatever is, uh, they make a lot of good, like, um, lactose free. Um, their milk is lactose free. They have a lot of good protein shake options. It's a really good company. Um, They don't sponsor me. Please sponsor me though. Um, It's okay. Anyway, back to the ice cream. It's a slightly higher calorie ice cream than Halo Top or like Enlightened or any of those like full-blown diet ice creams, but it's also definitely less calories than regular ice cream. The whole pint was like 500 calories. Um, And it didn't have, what I liked most about it for me was that it didn't have any sugar alcohols. Now, sugar alcohols are not going to kill you. They're not going to make you fat. They just might make you uncomfortable. And for me, when I, if I try and eat an entire pint of Halo Top, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just like farty and bloaty for the next like 12 hours. Like, and that's not uncommon. Sugar alcohols can have that effect on your digestion and it's not that they're a bad thing. They're not making you fat. It's just uncomfortable for some people. And so I wanted to test it, you know, you know, strictly for scientific purposes. I had the entire pint just so I could see, you know, I really needed to compare apples to apples. So I had the entire pint, 500 calories. And because there were no sugar alcohols, I think it's sweetened with stevia and monk fruit. Um, I didn't have any stomach ache at all. And so it was really pleasant. Um, and so yeah, it's less calories than normal ice cream. It's probably a little bit more calories than like your average, like diet ice cream, but frankly it would worth, it'd be worth a little bit more calories for me to not like be like shitting and farting for the next 12 hours. Um, yeah, and it was pretty damn good. And you know, I, I I wanted to say when I was thinking about this, how I felt about it, it has more protein and less fat. Um, but you know, if you're having ice cream for protein, you're already fucking up, but it doesn't hurt. So it is what it is cool. All right. We got time for one more. Okay. A on 15 says how to know when you need to have a rest day. I train every day. And I'm going to, this is very simple, really simple answer to your question. A if you're training every day, one of two things is happening. One, you're not training hard enough to actually make progress, Because if you were, you would need rest days. Like you would be begging for a rest day. You would not be able to perform seven days a week for weeks on end. If you're training hard enough to make actual progress, to expect progress, you're gonna need rest days. That's option one. Or option two is you are training hard enough to need rest days and it's only a matter of time before the rest days or the full-blown deload takes you or you get sick or injured uh, and you can't train, right? Because you're either not training hard enough where Again, this doesn't even fucking matter. I don't care because this is like, what happens in these contexts where people are are training seven days a week and not training hard enough, this is like where people are like exercising and you're exercising because you're scared not to. You're not training to build muscle growth or to improve fitness. You're exercising because you're scared not to. And if that's the situation you're in, you definitely don't need rest days because you're not training hard enough for this to actually matter. And so you're either not training hard enough to make actual progress because if you were, you would need rest days. You're exercising because you're scared not to or you are training hard enough to make gains and it's only a matter of time before those rest days or full-blown deloads take you in the form of, you know, you get sick or you get injured or you're so chronically sore that you can't even actually go in and perform. All right. Um, Okay, one more. We'll go to 40 minutes here. Next question is from Kieran Zanjum. It might be Kieran X Anjum. I don't know. Somebody help me out. If If this is you, shoot me a DM with some pronunciation. I hate mispronouncing people's names. Let me know. And is it she? She asks, "How accurate are Apple Watches in determining your TDEE?" I'll start by saying not accurate enough for you to use this as a meaningful metric, All right? How inaccurate? You know, there are studies that show anywhere from thirty to seventy percent off, which is massive when we're talking about your TDE. So, not accurate enough for you to use this as a metric in any way, shape, or form. Now, if we just talk about the the counting the calories that you burn. Um, I've talked about this before. I'm sure it's it's one of the age-old questions: is should you count back calories burned? I'd say this is bad for a couple of reasons. I'll keep it short. One, there again, it's inaccurate, and so you're using. If you're going to count something, it might as well be a number that has enough accuracy where it's meaningful. This does not. Second reason is it counting calories burned when you train discourages strength training. Um, and again, I, you know, I, I'm thinking about the way you phrase this question. I'm not sure that when that this is the same question I'm answering. It, when it's uh, uh, how accurate is it in determining your TDE? Not accurate enough to use as a metric. But if you want to use your Apple Watch's TDE recommendation as a ballpark for setting your calories, that's fine. But, and I say it's fine because at the end of the day, it doesn't freaking matter what number you use to start. What matters is that you actually stick to it long enough. You know, track the data, track your weigh-ins, track your calories, so that you know how to make adjustments. So if this is somebody who's like, Hey, Jordan. My Apple watch is saying that I burned 2,100 calories. Can I start with that? You can absolutely start with that. It's not law and it's not that accurate, but neither are, you know, algorithms and, and, and equations that we have, right? And so just freaking pick something. This is fine. If you want to start with that and get started, go nuts, but don't expect it to be perfect. Expect to have to make adjustments. Expect to have to track the data and make adjustments. Don't expect for this to be perfect. It's sure as hell not. Um, but going back to tracking calories, uh, burned as an independent metric here, I'd say one, it's bad cause it's inaccurate or, or it's not something you should do because it's inaccurate. It's probably not something you should do because it discourages strength or resistance training. And I'm not anti-cardio, but like, you know, if you, if the only thing that you're caring about is calories burned and you start picking an exercise modality based on what burns the most calories, that's a pretty shit way to pick your exercise modality, right? That, you should be picking the exercise, the training that you this might be controversial, whatever, maybe not, but you should pick an exercise modality based on one, yes, what you like doing in the moment, but two, also the adaptations that you're trying to get. And most people are going into the gym trying to, you know, build muscle or strength or improve their fitness or improve their physique, which is a a combination of all those things. Most people aren't in there just like, oh, I'm trying to burn calories. It's like, "Mm," you know, there's a time and a place. And again, I'm not anti-cardio because I think movement's super important if your goal is fat fat loss. But pick your training modality based on the adaptations you want, not the calories you burn. And the last reason would be counting calories burned can build a negative association with the calories you eat because now you have this, uh, you know, apples to apples metric, calories in, calories out. And you start thinking of your cardio sessions as a way of earning food. You start equating calorie sessions with food. And you're like, oh, I did 300 calories on the elliptical. That got me, you know, one quarter of a bagel or whatever. Like you start associating the calories that you're burning with the calories that you're eating. And now it kind of works like that, to be honest. But it's not a helpful state of mind because you end up in this state of mind where you're earning food, where you're on the treadmill so that you can earn the amount of food that you eat. Or you get into a scenario where you eat food and then you rationalize doing more cardio because you can burn it off. Man, those are some dark places to be. Cool. All right, guys. Thanks for everybody who asked a question. A little bit longer today. You guys are the best. And I will see you next week. We have two really great guests coming on. Uh, I think next week is Cody Moxley from N1 Education. I believe the week after that might be Jackson Payos to come in and talk about his um, uh, diet break study, which is uh, definitely something I've talked about on the podcast, but I really wanted to get him on to talk about it. So those two are coming soon. See you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks guys. Have a good one.